Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth. We're so happy that you decided to join us today. This is the teaching podcast from our Sunday worship service, recorded at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Our goal as a church is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. We hope that this message inspires you and helps to lead you deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. In the beginning. See, that's where all this started, literally and, you know, with our little teaching series we've been doing. Back in January, we started a study through the scriptures, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. And we're going all the way through to Revelation, the end of Revelation, uh, by the end of the year. And last week, when Pastor Harold was teaching, we reached a milestone. We reached a milestone in that we have completed the Old Testament. Uh, No, Genesis to Malachi. In case you didn't know, the Bible's broken up into lots of cat- like groups, but two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament uh, comprises about two-thirds of the entire Bible, 39 out of the 66 books, and the other 27 are in the New Testament. And we finished those first 39 books, and they cover a long range of history, starting from the creation all the way up through the exile and then return back to, um, back to the land. And then the New Testament talks about the story of Jesus and the church. Uh, And we finished the Old Testament. So this week, we're kind of in in an in-between phase. We're not talking about the New Testament yet. That's next week. This week, we are kind of sitting in between the Testaments because there's a lot of things that happen in between the Testaments, and they're not all in the Bible. Um, In fact, there is... um, there is a, well, let me go through this first. The, the, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is not really in order, chronological order. There's a general flow to it, going from the beginning to where, where we get to, but the books are not in order. For example, um, the story of Job, it's in the middle of the Old Testament, but that is considered to be the oldest story in the Bible. It was written before Genesis was written. I know the story of Genesis talked about a time before that, but the story of Job was written before Genesis was written. It's the oldest story in the Bible, but it's in the middle of the Old Testament. Um, the story, the book of Nehemiah, is in the middle of the prophets, but that is actually the last story chronologically in the Old Testament. The story of Nehemiah ends, and that is the furthest point in time uh, in the Old Testament. Now, there are the prophets. Malachi was around at that time, and so Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. But the story of Nehemiah, and also Ezra was there as well, that's the final story in the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament. The very first thing that happens is actually in the third book, in the book of Luke. So it's not completely in order. Things are moved around. So it's, it's, uh, it helps to kind of put things into chronological order. And in that time between Nehemiah, where Nehemiah returns to the land, and starts to rebuild the wall. And where Luke picks up with the story of Jesus, there's about a 400-year gap that's not in the Bible. Some people call it the silent period. There's no prophets. There's no stories. There's nothing. It's just silent. But just because it was silent, um, it doesn't mean that it was quiet. In fact, quite a bit happened during that time period. And quite a bit takes place that we need to talk about because when we leave Nehemiah, 
Nehemiah, uh, if you remember, they are still in exile. Most of the people are in exile. Some have come back, but Nehemiah was in exile in Persia at the time uh, with King Artaxerxes, and he was upset, and he wanted to come back, and he said, I want to rebuild the wall, so he lets him go back, and so Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall, and when we pick up the New Testament, Persia's gone. In fact, Rome is now in charge. And the wall is rebuilt, and the city is thriving. It's a metropolis at this point, and there's a lot going on. So how do we get from Nehemiah trying to get the walls rebuilt to having a different occupying force in the land and the city's uh, a, you know, a fully functional city? A lot has happened in that time period. So we want to fill that gap in between the Testaments. And uh, to prepare for next week when we go into the Gospels to talk about the story of Jesus, how do we get from Nehemiah to Jesus? So we'll do a little bit of a recap. Uh, and then we'll continue through, through there. So let's go back to where it all started in the beginning, where God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That right there, those three verses, tells you everything you need to know about the Bible. That tells you the entire story of the scriptures. It lays the groundwork for everything that's going to come after it. It, show, um, it shows the essence and the nature of God and tells you the direction where everything is going to be heading in. See, in the beginning, God created the universe, everything, everything inside of it. Every atom and molecule, every chemical element, every physical law like gravitation or electromagnetism, uh, all the stars and the planets, matter and dark matter, everything you can see and touch, every thought you've ever had, everything that there is, we call it the cosmos, and God created that in the beginning. But there is an issue with the creation in verse 2. It says, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Formless and empty, those two words, those are like the key words here. In the original language, this wasn't written in English. It was written thousands and thousands of years ago in Hebrew. And so those two words, formless, the word for formless is the word tohu. It means um, confusion or an unreality. Formless, tohu. The next word, uh, empty, is vavohu. It means Empty, emptiness, but it also means avoid. So this little phrase, tohu vavohu, this little funny rhyming phrase we have in the original language, when you combine those two words together, it means one thing. It means chaos. So the earth is in a state of chaos in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The way that it describes the earth formless and empty, the, the, the turbulent waters and God's spirit hovering, it sounds a lot like the way that science describes the proto-earth as it was forming. It had not yet solidified. It had not yet become what it's supposed to be. It's this big soupy mess of something. It's there, but it's not done yet. And this is the way that the Bible describes earth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. But it doesn't stop there. There's one more part to that verse. It says, "...the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters." That word hovering I want to look at too, because that word is interesting as well. <clears throat> the word hovering in the original language is pronounced uh, merahipet. 
and it means to grow. It also is the word that we get our English word brooding from. If you don't know what brooding is, I don't blame you because you're not a farmer. (laughs) Brooding is when a chicken lays an egg, and then that egg needs to incubate and become, you know, a chicken. And so the, the, the chicken will sit on top of the egg, spread her wings over it, keep that egg nice and warm, and keep that thing incubated because the chicken knows that someday, right now it's just an egg, but it will become something bigger and greater. It'll become a chicken. And then eventually, it'll take its final and true form as buffalo wings. <laughs> but it's the, it's the ultimate goal of every chicken, right? But this is, the, this is the picture that is painted of the earth. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters the same way, and they use the same word that they used to describe a chicken hovering over her eggs, incubating them because they're not done yet. They're not ready. They're going to be something, but they're not there just yet. They need some time to, you know, to bake a little bit more. So, amidst the chaos of the earth in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the earth, over the waters, brooding over it, ready to birth something amazing, but it's not ready yet. And then in verse 3, as there was chaos, as there is darkness, as it's described, God speaks into the darkness and says, let there be light. And there was light. And we can stop there because that's all of it. The three verses tells you everything you need to know, like I said. There's the entire story of the Bible. Now, there is a lot of detail left, and we've talked about a lot of that detail over the last eight months. And there's a lot of other stories that go into it, but the overarching story of the Bible has already been told. Verses 1, 2, and 3. If you forget everything said in this stage for the past eight months in this year, remember those three verses, and you'll have it. You'll have the entire thing. The story of the Bible is this. God is the God who brings order out of chaos. See, there was a void, and there was emptiness, and there was darkness, and God stepped into the chaos and brought light. In fact, he brought a whole lot more than light. We're going to go into that. But where there was chaos, God brought order into it. And the the rest of Genesis chapter 1 tells that story. It's this beautiful, um, organized, symmetrical, rhythmic poem that tells the story of how God brings order into chaos. There's an ebb and a flow to it. There's, there's a call and a response to it. Um, and so let's talk really quick about the days of creation, because if we get the days of creation, we will understand everything else happening in the Bible. So day one, we've already said that God said, let there be light, and there was light. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. He, the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and then there was morning on the first day. I want you to notice something. We often focus on the fact that God like, sparked light out of darkness, and that's true. Light was created, but that's not the key uh, action verb of that phrase. The key verb in that phrase is that God separated the light from the darkness. The word separate is important, and it comes up more than one time in the story. God separated the light from the darkness. So there was darkness. God called the light out and then separated. Put the light here, put the darkness over here, created a space. I have light, I have darkness. Day one, God separated light from the dark. And then we go to day two. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. That's a weird phrase. That's a phrase referring to something called the antediluvian um, 
world. It's not important right now. You can Google it on your own, but it's, it's a weird phrase. I just wanted to say that. Um, but it says, God made a vault that separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and, this, and it was so. He called the vault the sky. Uh, and then there was evening and there was morning on the second day. So on day two, God did some more separating. There was water, and he separated it out, and now we have sky, which is great because the atmosphere is kind of good for us. I don't know about you, I kind of like that we have oxygen. It works, it works for us. So he separated the sky out of the sea. More separation. Day one, separated light and dark, created that space. Day two, separated sky from sea, created that space. And it was good. And there was evening and morning. Day three, God said, let the water uh, under the sky be gathered into one place. Put the water over here. And then let dry ground appear over here separating land from the sea. And it was so. He saw that it was good. So when you look at this, the first three days of creation, there's not a whole lot of creation going on, but there is a whole lot of separation going on. There's a whole lot of preparation, creating space for something that's about to happen. This is the brooding that Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 is talking about. There's not a whole lot on earth yet. Like, the creation is not done. And so, but what God is doing is preparing a space for what is about to happen. And then, day four. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, days and the years. And let, them be lights in the vault, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two gray lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night, when he also made stars. Day four, God creates the sun, moon, and the stars. Now, what did he separate out on day one? Light and dark. And he says he took the greater light, the sun, to govern the day, the light. Took the lesser light, the moon, to govern the night. Day one, God created a space for something that did not exist yet. Day four, he filled that space with the thing that belongs inside of that space. There's a pattern going on here. They, the first part of creation, he separates. The second part, he starts to fill what was separated. Day five, God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. Birds and fish. Where do birds go? The sky. Fish go in the sea. Well, where was that from? That was day two. So day two, God separates some, a space out. Day five, God fills that space with what belongs inside that space. Day six, God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God said, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. Day six, God creates animals and people who live on the land which was separated in day three. So if you look, there's a pattern going on here. Day one directly corresponds to day four. Day two directly corresponds to day five. Day three directly corresponds to day six. In the first half of creation, God creates a space for what has to happen. The second half, God fills that space with exactly what belongs inside of that space. There's a plan going on here. There's an order to this. There's a, uh, a meticulous design going on here. 
The, uh, the creation story, it's a beautiful, organized poem showing the character of God who created the universe and brought the universe from a state of chaos into a state of order. Separating spaces out, filling those spaces when the time is right. Because God is the God who brings order out of chaos. Now, once the order had been brought, it didn't last very long because now there's people on the planet and people tend to mess things up. We're, we're good at that. So, uh, but before that, everything was exactly as it needed to be. There was peace, there was harmony. The word, original word that we use to describe this is the word shalom. It means peace and wholeness and harmony. Everything is exactly as it's supposed to be. Things are doing what they're supposed to be doing. There's harmony between God and people and all the different people that are on the earth and between uh, people and the earth itself. There's just harmony everywhere. Everything's clicking. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. But again... There's people there. So it doesn't last very long. Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the fall. Uh, The serpent tries to deceive Adam and Eve, telling them, you don't have to do what God said. You can do things your own way. And it actually worked. They believed him. And so they fell. They reintroduced chaos back into the story. But God is the God who brings order out of chaos. He's not a God of chaos. So as soon as it happened... God created a plan immediately to restore the shalom that was broken, to restore the order that had now been uh, corrupted. And because it was the serpent who did the deceiving, yes, the people believed him and the people did the the act, uh, but God spoke to the serpent. Genesis 3.14, it says, uh, because you've done this, cursed you are, or you are, yes, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity, this is the important part, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. So God is saying from the very beginning, I had this place exactly as it was supposed to be, and chaos was brought back in through the, the will of people. I'm going to fix this. The, the, the order will be restored. And because it was introduced through people, it is also going to come through a person, this, this restoring of, of, uh, of order. And so God says that there is going to be some descendant down the line, not, not giving a date when, but some descendant of Adam and Eve is going to rise up. And there's going to be enmity, there's going to be friction, there's going to be a, a, a conflict between the serpent and between this, this descendant of Adam and Eve. And the serpent is going to get, like a, he's going to get a punch in. He's going to, he's going to you know, it says, uh, strike, strike his heel. But this future descendant is going to land the knockout punch. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent, destroy the serpent, who we later find out is Satan. So God made a promise that a descendant of Adam and Eve will rise up against Satan at some point in time. The serpent serpent will strike the heel, the descendant will crush his head, and order will be restored at that point. There's already a plan in place. And because of that, immediately after the fall, there was now hope. Hope that tomorrow can be better than today, that the mistakes that we've made in the past don't have to rule our future, that the world can get better, that things are going to work out. And so people have this hope now, and that hope starts to uh, continue through the generations because they know somebody's coming at some point, and it's going to be made right. So let's fast forward a couple hundred years because we have a lot of history to cover here. Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a guy named Abram. He has a wife named Sarai. Uh, They later have their names changed to Abraham and Sarah. Um, And God speaks to Abram, which is kind of weird because Abram 
is the father of the Jewish people, but he wasn't Jewish. He was Samarian. He had his own gods. He had lots of gods. He was a polytheistic religion. And um, this other god, who's not his, talks to him and says, I'm, I'm doing something, Abram. I have a plan, and I want you to be a part of it. And I want you to go over that way. Literally, he's like, go there. Just walk. I'll tell you when you get there. Like, no details. Just go. And he makes a promise, though, if Abram decides to follow and do this. He says in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a callback to the original promise. God is saying the plan still exists. That, that descendant of Adam and Eve is still coming, but Abram, I want them to come through your family. You're a part of this now. And Abraham says, let's go. And, and they do it. Um, so God is reaffirming the original promise. The hope is still alive. Now, order is coming, and restoration is coming. Not here yet, but it's coming. So Abraham, Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. Isaac grows up, gets married to uh, someone named uh, Rebecca. They have a family. They have their own kids. Specifically, they have two, two uh, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Um, Jacob and Esau, if you remember from back when we talked about Genesis, they had a contentious relationship. Jacob was a kind of a jerk. He did not treat his brother right. He stole things from him. At one point when they were adults, he saw his brother and his whole family coming. He's like, oh, he's about to kill me because he knows that he was just not a good person to his brother. There was always a family tension. Now, the two brothers did eventually kind of make up, but the family tension never went away. Jacob settled in the north where he settled what has uh, became known as Israel. Esau settled in the south, where he settled became known as Edom. Remember that, because we're going to come back to that in a couple thousand years. Jacob, um, Jacob is married, um, has a big family, at least 12 sons that we're told about. And these sons go on, the family grows and grows, and they become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're named after the sons, after these sons. Now, eventually, there's a famine in the land. The, the family needs to survive. There's a lot of them. So they go to Egypt, and they survive out the famine, and they start to live in Egypt. Uh, and then 400 years pass. They're not a big family anymore. There are now millions of these people living in Egypt. The Egyptians at some point were like, there's a lot of people living here who aren't Egyptian. Let's make them slaves. And so they did that. And so now Israel is a, being held in slavery in Egypt 400 years after um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they cry out to God, and they're like, God, there's this plan. We're supposed to be, you know, the, the, the hope of the world is supposed to be coming through us, but we're stuck here in slavery in Egypt. What's going on? And they're crying out because they're miserable and they're, you know, oppressed. And God hears them, and God says that he's concerned about it, and he sends a guy named Moses to deliver them. And Moses does deliver the people with signs and wonders from God. And they leave Egypt. And they go out back to their, towards their homeland. And on the way to their homeland, God, again, reaffirms the original promise. He says to the people, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you out in eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. So God says, the plan is not dead. The plan still exists. 
The hope is still coming through you. I haven't forgotten. We got a little sidetracked in Egypt there. There's a little detour. But the plan's going on. This nation is going to be something special. The hope of the world is going to come through here. So God is constantly throughout time reaffirming this original thing that there's going to be a descendant of Adam and Eve that's going to make everything right. Let's go ahead another 500 years. Now Israel is an established nation. They have cities. They have agriculture. They have business. They have a king. king's name is David. They're doing well for themselves. David is described as a man after God's own heart, and God goes to David at this time and speaks to David. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God is again saying, the plan is still happening. And now it's going to come through your royal line, David. Long at, He even said this, long after you're dead, your descendants are going to go on and your kingdom is going to last forever because this hope, this promise is going to come through your royal family line and his kingdom will never end. So God is saying, we're still on track. We're going where we, where we need to go. And the hope is still alive because order is coming. Restoration is coming. And now we know it's coming through David's family royal bloodline. Fast forward another 300 years, covering a lot of time. The people are not living up to their end of the bargain. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Some of them have completely abandoned their God. They're definitely not following the, the, the laws um, of God. They're mistreating their neighbors. They're oppressing people in their own country. They're swindling people. They're just using shady business practices, as talked about in books like Amos and Micah. Um, they're, not doing, they're not living up to what they're supposed to be. And so the prophets arise. And the prophets say, if you don't, if you don't get just act together, you're going to go into, into exile. And they didn't get their acts together, and so they went into exile. Um, at first, it was um, around the year 700 B.C. Assyria comes in, conquers Israel, brings them, this northern kingdom, brings them into exile in, in Assyria. So they're gone. And then about another 120 years later, Babylon comes in and gets the rest of them in multiple phases, but they get the rest of them, bring them into exile. So now the whole nation is in exile in Assyria and Babylon. Things don't seem to be going too well according to the plan. The temple's destroyed, the city is in ruins, the people uh, are conquered, the land is being occupied by other foreign uh, sovereignties. Eventually, Assyria gets conquered by the Medes, and then uh, the Persians come and conquer everything with Babylon. And so now Persia is in control. Persia has both the northern and the southern kingdoms. They control the land. They set the rules and things like that. Now, some people were allowed to return during this time period, and this is where the story of Nehemiah picks up. This is where Nehemiah is. Nehemiah is serving under the Persian king named Artaxerxes. And he's troubled because the plan is that the hope of the world is going to come through these people, but the city lies in ruins. The temple's destroyed. People are scattered. They're all over Persia at this point. And so the king asks, like, what's going on? He's like, well, how can I be happy when all this is going on? So, he's, so he says, can I go back and start trying to rebuild the wall? And the king's like, go, get it done. And so Nehemiah goes back, and he starts to reestablish and rebuild the city and the nation. And again, there's other people there. Ezra had already come back, 
and he is trying to lead the people in a kind of like a religious revival kind of thing, trying to get them back on track with the, the Jewish laws and things like that. And so they're working to restore this nation. And we have the prophets, like Malachi is around at this time. And Malachi starts prophesying, one, to get the people back on track, but also that this hope is actually really close now. So close um, that they start to talk about, you know, the messenger that's going to come before them to, to uh, prepare the way. And other prophets are talking about it. In, in, uh, in Micah chapter 5, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah is saying that the, this, this, uh, this promised descendant is coming. They now have a name for him. They call him the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And, so, and now we know that he's going to be from, coming from Bethlehem, which you know, that's good for us. We know that now. And so even though things are kind of all over the place in a mess, things are starting to fall back into place, and the prophets are saying it's happening. It's going to be coming soon. So again, the hope is still alive because order is coming and restoration is coming. Even though things look bad for the nation, the Messiah, the anointed one from God, is on their way. We know that they're going to be born in Bethlehem. The chaos will not continue forever because God is the God who brings order out of chaos. <clears throat> so we've just covered the entire Old Testament. That's where it ends. It just stops right there. There's no conclusion to the story, as far as we know, because that's where we stop. We don't even know if Nehemiah succeeds in rebuilding the wall. It just The story just ends. And so now we've entered this time period of silence. There's 400 years before the New Testament even begins. But again, just because it's silent, it was not a quiet time period. There's a lot that happens. Nehemiah is working on the city's infrastructure, getting it built up. Ezra is working on, on getting people's hearts back into the right place. The prophets are prophesying. Persia is still in control. They still own the land. They're, these people are not in exile anymore, but they are definitely still being occupied. So what happens next? Well, it's not in the Bible. The Bible has 66 books, and there's a gap, a 400-year gap, between Nehemiah and Luke, who picks up the story um, but here's what happens. About 100 years after Nehemiah and Ezra and Malachi, they're gone. Persia is conquered by a guy named Alexander. He was pretty great. He was pretty great because whatever he saw that he wanted, he was like, I want that. And he went and he took it. Any land he wanted, he was like an incredible conquering force. Like no one could stop him. He was a Greek from Macedonia, and he conquered Persia, meaning he conquered Israel because they were still under Persian control. So now Israel is under Greek rule, and there's a lot that happens. There's different factions of the Greeks that come to play different parts of time, but now the Greeks around, it was around, what, 334 B.C., I believe, the Greeks came in and took control, and so now everything is Greek all over the place. Now, one good thing about the Greeks is that they didn't really care about your individual religions. They had lots of gods who cared about adding one other god. So they were allowed to worship how they wanted to, but they were still occupied. They were still under Greek control. Whatever the Greeks said, that's what had to go because the Greeks were the ones in charge. And they ruled for about 150 years. Um, yeah, for about another 150 years. Um, and so things were... I mean, they were occupied, but it was okay, kind of. They were allowed to worship until 
one Greek ruler came. Harold mentioned him last week. Antiochus Epiphanes. Here's about 175 BC. And Antiochus is like, we had this great Greek empire, but there's so many not Greek people in it. Wouldn't it be great if everyone was just Greek? So let's Greekify all the things. And he starts to do that. And so when he comes to Israel, he's, he pretty much makes it illegal to be Jewish. <clears throat> and he says, uh, you're all Greek now. You're going to follow the Greek customs. You're going to do the Greek things. You're going to take Greek names, things like that. And um, he, well, they, they say that the way that they describe it is, um, well, he, he kind of, um, I'll just tell you. He, he goes to the Temple Mount, sits up an idol of Zeus, the Greek god, on the Temple Mount. He forces the priests to sacrifice the idols on the Jewish altar. He forces them to sacrifice pigs on the altar. If you've read Leviticus with us back in like um, February, that's a big no-no. You don't do that. He forbade people to follow Jewish customs and laws. He made it a capital offense, punishable by death, if you had the scriptures with you. He forced parents to stop circumcising their children, which was the sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. Some people were on board with this. They even went through and had reverse circumcision surgeries, which I don't know how that works. And I don't want to know how that works, but it happens. He told them, you can't be Jewish anymore. You can't be who you've been. You're all Greek now. And now think about it. At this point, it has been about 600 years that they've been either in exile or occupied by a foreign force. They're tired of it. Especially one priest's family. His name was Matthias. He had a bunch of sons. They're known as the Maccabees. This is the story of Hanukkah. If you want to read up about how the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah came about, this is the story. Uh, they were like, uh, this is the last straw. We're, we're not going to take this. We're, we're done with this. And they go to war against the Greeks. Particularly, one of their sons named Judah was very good at war. And he was just like awesome. And he just went and conquered and pushed back the Greeks. And he was just doing amazing things, reclaiming the land. They retook the temple back for the Jewish people. They expelled the Greeks. Judah was so good at conquering and delivering his people that people thought, this is the Messiah. Has to be because he's doing what the Messiah is going to do. He's reestablishing the Jewish um, dynasty. They did. They reestablished the Jewish kingdom. They made a free and independent Israel. They did. They did what they set out to do. So everyone's like, Judah's got to be the Messiah. Got to be. I mean, he's doing exactly what we're doing. He reestablished the, the royal line. Judah wasn't the Messiah. He died in 100, I think it was 163 B.C. And that was the end of his story. But he, he helped set up this new Israel free Israel. He established the Hasmonean dynasty, a Jewish royal family, which continued for a hundred years. Israel was free during this time period for a hundred years. And then Rome comes to the door. And Rome pretty much walks in and says, I mean, there's some ways that they got into it. We don't have to go into it now, but they pretty much said, hi, we're Rome and we're in control now. And the people were like, you're Rome, you're in control now. Because if you stepped up against Rome, you probably would find yourself crucified. That's foreshadowing. So Rome is in control now. And again, Rome let them worship how they wanted to. They didn't care that they had their own little, little god. They had, they had their big Roman gods. That's all they cared. That was fine for them. Who cares about another god? But they did rule with an iron fist. And they had their own governors and proctors 
and people in charge to make sure that the people who were occupied by them were in line. They paid their taxes. That was important. They followed the Pax Romana. They did what they were supposed to do. They didn't step out of line. And so they put their own king on the throne. They broke the, the dynasty of the, the free Jewish people, kingdom, and they put their own people on the throne. And eventually, a guy named Herod comes into power as king. Herod is the king in the New Testament at the beginning. We're up to the New Testament. We're, 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 we're right around there. Herod, the king of the Jews, was not popular because he wasn't a Jew. Herod was Idumean. Idumean is the, a Greekified way to say an Edomite. If you remember the Edomites, they were the descendants of Esau. And that family never got along very well. The, the Jewish people didn't like the Edomites. There was always some kind of contention between them. And now an Edomite is on the throne as the king of the Jews. They didn't like this. There's a lot of tension going around Israel, or Judea as it's called then at this point. Um, and Herod was a paranoid, jealous, crazy person. Anywhere he thought his power was being contested, he would kill that person or make them disappear, wipe out like, everything about them because maybe he knew he wasn't the rightful king. He wasn't from the line of David. He wasn't even from the line of Jacob. He was a, a cousin to the family, a long-distant cousin. So he was so paranoid. He thought that the Sanhedrin, which was the, the, the Jewish you know, religious council, he thought they were plotting against him. So he killed 45 members of it and all of their families. In order to protect his power, he killed three of his own sons. In order to protect his power, he killed his wife and her whole family. He had spies everywhere trying to find out who's talking about me, who's plotting against me. He was paranoid. Can you imagine someone like this, what kind of vicious thing that they might do if they hear that the actual king of the Jews had been born in their kingdom. That's also called foreshadowing for next week. Stay tuned. So Herod's in control. He's governing things for Rome, one of the most brutal, powerful empires the world had ever seen at that point. And this is the world of the New Testament. This is where we are. The stage is now set. We've gone through the story of the Old Testament. Israel has been in exile or occupied for most of the last seven or 800 years. They're tired of it. Now they're being oppressed by Rome. They have a king who is not supposed to be there telling them what to do, not, and who's you know, Jewish in name, but not really not really following things. This is the world of the New Testament. The people are under a lot of stress. There's a lot of tension, but the hope is still there because the promise was that God is going to deliver this world, bring order back into the chaos. Things seem really chaotic right now for these people, but the hope is there, and the prophets have said that it's going to happen, and it's going to happen very, very soon. See, in the beginning, God brought order to the chaos, and there was shalom. People reintroduced the chaos to the creation, broke the shalom, and God has made a promise and has been working ever since then to do this. He reconfirmed it to Abraham, 
to Moses, to David, through the prophets. Um, and he's just saying, it's happening. You just got to trust. And now, they're supposed to be the final prophet to announce the Messiah, who's supposed to be coming very soon. The Messiah is imminent. They know it. He has to appear. See, amidst the chaos, the hope is still alive because order is coming and restoration is coming. It has to because God is the God who brings order out of chaos. Tomorrow can be better than today, and God has not given up on us or on these people. All is going to be made right. So, like Harold said last week, this seems really bad, but a lot of what was happening was setting up what was, was coming. When the Greeks took over, one thing they, they introduced was a unified language. Everybody spoke Greek, so the gospel could now travel and people could hear it. When Rome came in, they were pretty terrible, but they were very good at building infrastructure. And they built roads, and they built you know, systems for things. And they made, uh, again, the gospel easy to start to, to move around. So what's actually happening, what looks like exile and oppression and occupation, is actually a picture of God brooding over the turbulent waters, separating things out, putting things where they need to be, because something's going to happen, but everything has to be in place for it to happen first. And then in Luke chapter 1, in the New Testament, with this stage set, here's what happens. In the time of King Herod, the time we're talking about right now, in the time of King Herod in Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. <coughs> but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This baby John is the one who was prophesied by Malachi hundreds of years before saying that when this person comes, get ready because they're the ones who are preparing the way for the actual Messiah. When you see this person, it's happening. Get ready. Malachi chapter 3 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. When you see this prophet, John the Baptist, the one whom you desire will come. It's happening. The waiting is over. The promise is being fully maharepeted, brooded. The time of brooding is over. Everything is where it needs to be. Everything is prepped. Everything is separated. We're ready. And now the days of filling can begin. Messiah can come and fill that space. Creation can finally be put back into order. But there's no spoils as to who this Messiah might be coming I mean, it's Jesus. I mean, it's Jesus is the one they're waiting for. You're in a Christian church, you probably should see that one coming. But we're not there yet. That's next week. 
So John is here. Jesus hasn't come yet. Um, the story of the scriptures is the story of creation. It's the story of the God who brings order out of chaos. God sets up a space and then fills that space. Did it way back in the beginning, making the world exactly how it was supposed to be. And ever since the fall, the plan was put in place. We're going to get there. We just have to get all the pieces in the right place first. And then things can start to happen. He separates the space out and then fills that space with exactly what belongs inside of that space. He's the God who establishes the shalom in the world, the peace and the harmony. Now, if you follow Christ, then this is also your story. Like if you say that you follow this God that we're talking about, this is your story. God brings order out of chaos. He sets things in place and then gets things moving. So I don't know what your story currently looks like. You could be in a state of complete chaos. Maybe you don't, know who, you don't even know who God is. Maybe things just aren't going right and things just feel completely chaotic. That could be where you are. Maybe you're in this brooding stage where things are, are being put in place. It doesn't feel great. It might feel like exile and occupation the way that it felt for Israel. It didn't feel good at the time, but it was getting stuff ready. You might be there. Or you might be in the stage where things are starting to click and get put into place because God is filling those spaces um, and getting everything the way that it's supposed to be. But if you follow this God, then like, you, you have to believe that order can, can come out of the chaos because that's what God does. Like, you have to believe that tomorrow can be better than today is, that your mistakes that you make today aren't going to affect you in the future because that's not what God does. God makes the order come out of the chaos. That's the promise. It was a promise in creation. It was the promise through the entirety of the Old Testament. Fulfilled in Jesus. We're, we're, you know, we're past there, but like when we're studying, we're, we're, we're not quite there yet. That's the hope, and that's the promise. Like Whatever stage you're in, you have to believe that tomorrow can be better than today because that's who God is. And if you don't believe that, then are you really believing in this God? Because you can't separate the two things. You know, things might look dim. Right now in your life, it might look like Herod is sitting on the throne after 700 years of occupation and exile and struggle and prayers and crying out to God. But Herod is there because he needs to be there. Because he was put in place so that everything could be prepped for Messiah to come. And it was during the reign of Herod that John was born to prepare the way. The voice of one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. And the prophet says, once you hear that voice, get ready. Because Messiah is right around the corner. Like your hope is coming. So wherever you are, you just have to have faith that tomorrow can be better. And it's as simple as that because you, it, it, that's who God says he is. That's who God has shown who he is throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. When things looked terrible, things were actually happening in the background, and there was a plan. And the plan, even though the people went into slavery, even though there was you know, family issues, even though they weren't following 
the way they were supposed to be, and they went into exile, and then they were just oppressed for hundreds of years. God was still, the plan wasn't gone. The plan was still happening. And that is the promise of God. That he's on your side. He hasn't abandoned you. And he's working things out. It may take some time. It took thousands of years for this to happen. It took thousands of years to get from Adam and Eve to John the Baptist. But it happened because that's the time that it needed to happen. Because God is the God who brings order out of chaos. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the fact that you're here with us, that you haven't abandoned us, and that, that you're working things out for our good. I pray that whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever the situation looks like, however dim it looks or however bright it looks, that we can look to you and we can see you and recognize that you're doing something, that things are falling into place. Maybe you're still separating things out and getting things ready. Maybe you're starting to fill things in our lives that need to be filled and putting things in place. But I pray that you would just help us to see you at work when things look the darkest, that uh, you help us to have faith that tomorrow can be better, that hope can, can, can remain, that, that order is coming from the chaos, and that, that even though there's darkness, that tomorrow that, that there can be light. Um, just help us to have faith. Uh, increase our faith where we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch on demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.